Welcome to you, wherever you're at, whomever you're with. We are so very glad that you are here with us for a few moments this weekend. We're going to jump right into our Christmas message series. It's called Revealed, and it's uh, When God Became Knowable. You know, uh, it's a it's a wonderful thing to uh, begin to sense the reality of God and open up to God as he is making himself known to us. And uh, our point of departure in this series has been a John's Gospel, as we mentioned last week, you know, uh, the uh, four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of them contain what we consider the, uh, the nativity story, the, the events surrounding the birth of Christ and all of our great uh, Christmas stories and content uh, come from Matthew and Luke. And Mark's gospel just has Jesus at the age of 30, arriving on the scene, being baptized by John, and beginning his ministry. Uh, but John, John's gospel uh, gives us a cosmic view of the coming of Christ. And uh, really, our point of departure is the statement that John makes in the beginning of his gospel, what's known as the prologue. He says this, no one has ever seen God. That's a huge truth in our world, and you think of all the, the religions of the world, the civilizations that have uh, tried to find the invisible God, uh, try to get God to work on their behalf. Uh, John just begins with this statement, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made God known to us. And you know, that really is the gift of Christmas that God, uh, in a sense, came out from behind uh, closed doors, made himself clearly known and seen uh, to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Jesus refers to God as his Father uh, more than a hundred times in John's Gospel. That's significant. Uh, and uh, John, in his prologue, says, Christ, who is in the closest relationship with the Father, uh, is certainly qualified to disclose, to make God known to us. And the way he did it is by coming near to us. And we're told also in uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, you know, the closeness of that relationship that Jesus shared uh, with God, uh, being himself God and now being born uh, as flesh and blood, uh, qualifies him in a unique way to make God known. And uh, later on in John's gospel, uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. He's about to return to God. He's going to be put to death for the sins of the world, raised from the dead, ascend into heaven, pour his spirit out, upon his followers so that they can share that same communion that he has with God. And uh, interestingly, as Jesus is prepping uh, his disciples for the big events surrounding his passion and the cross, uh, Philip, one of the 12, uh, makes this uh, appeal to Jesus. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. You know, that's not a bad request. Philip is saying, look, Lord, uh, we realize something's in transition here. Something is in motion. You're, uh, you're about to change your relationship with us. And how about you do this one thing? Just show us the Father. Show us God clearly. 
and that will be enough. Interesting response Jesus has to that appeal. Jesus answered him, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? And then this amazing statement, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, You know, again, in a nutshell, that is the essence of Christmas, that uh, glory came down and heaven filled our world. And Jesus said, look, uh, there is no point of separation between what you've seen and heard from me and who God is. Uh, That's a huge idea. You know, there's this game our our kids play in youth group, and uh, someone will start the the game uh, by uh, whispering something to the person next to them, and uh, some fact, and then uh, the next person will turn and share that fact with the person next to them, and so on, and so on, and so on. And it's always amazing, by the time that message gets around the circle, how much it has morphed and completely changed. Uh, you want to add a twist to it. You ask people not to use words. Uh, just act it out. Uh, pantomime uh, the, the message. And uh, again, by the time it works its way around the circle, it's become anything but what it was originally intended to be. Well, when Jesus came to make the Father known, there was none of that. There was no dilution. There was no separation. Uh, Jesus, in a sense, says, what you've heard from me and seen in me, that's who God is. There's no, there's no uh, hiddenness about God. In fact, Jesus will go on and say, very truly, I tell you, uh, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does. Uh, again, there's no gaslighting with uh, Jesus. He's not He's not leading us on. He's not telling us mistruths. Uh, If you want to dial into God and get focused on who the invisible creator is, look at Jesus. Look at the things he taught. Look at the things he did, and we will know God. In fact, uh, Jesus makes it very plain. He says, look, uh, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even if you do not believe me, Well, believe the works so that you may know and understand that God, the Father, is in me, and I am in the Father. You know, that's a a challenge. It's an invitation that Jesus gives to anyone who would want to know God. He said, look, if, if you don't believe the words I say, well, look at the works that I did and let them speak to you. Let them reveal to you the nature of God, what his heart is like, what matters to him. Uh, Is anyone uh, listening to this message? Are you old enough to remember the old Polaroid cameras? You know, those were kind of Stone Age things, but uh, you would snap your photo, and then you'd pull out this uh, square of film, and uh, there wouldn't really be a picture there yet. Uh, The chemicals kind of had to do their thing. Sometimes you'd wave it, get the get the air motion going, and lo and behold, this image would appear, your photo. Well, you know, Jesus is saying the works that he did, the miracles he did are kind of like that. At first glance, they may just look like, you know, kind of a magic trick, uh, something that not a lot of people can do, Uh, but as it begins to take shape, you begin to look upon it, uh, God will open up to us the nature of that's behind 
That miracle, the heart of God, the disposition of God, the ways of God, and uh, what Jesus revealed to us about God uh, through his miracles is a profound aspect of knowing him. And uh, today in this message, we're going to look at uh, just one of the miracles of Jesus. In fact, according to John's gospel, this is the very first miracle that Jesus worked. You find it in John chapter 2. Uh, but here's a, something you may not uh, notice on first reading. Uh, the miracles explained and interpreted and applied all the way through chapter 4, almost to chapter 5 of John's gospel. And so uh, we're going to look at that this morning uh, and let the work of Jesus uh, unveil the nature of God to us. And uh, if you're familiar with John's good news account, uh, you'll recall that the very first miracle that Jesus did is he turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. He turned water into wine. And uh, a few thoughts from that account. We're told that uh, when Jesus arrived at this wedding with his disciples, everything was in full motion. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, something went wrong according to the wedding plans. At the reception, they ran out of wine, which... Uh, Apparently, in this part of the world, this time in history, that was a really big deal, as it probably is at a lot of wedding receptions today. But they went, they ran out of wine. Uh, Jesus' mother uh, notices. She comes to Jesus and says, uh, look, uh, they've run out of wine. And uh, his reaction to her is somewhat comical. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Uh, but then she turned and uh, said to the attendants, do whatever he instructs you to do. And so we're told that nearby uh, stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. That's a significant detail here uh, because it would uh, depict the entire religion of the Old Testament. Uh, one of their high points was the ceremonial things they did to make themselves acceptable to God. And so here at this wedding feast, out of wine, uh, Jesus notices six of these uh, ceremonial jars. Uh, they were empty, but they stood there for the, the ceremonial washing uh, uh, part of their worship. Each of them would hold 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They had no idea what was coming down at this point. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Uh, apparently, it was vintage stock at this point. Uh, he did not realize where it had come from, and he thought the servants, uh, though the servants uh, who had drawn the water, they knew what had taken place, that uh, Jesus had turned this common water in these ceremonial washing jars into apparently some pretty fantastic wine. And uh, then he called the, the bridegroom aside, and he made a rather comical statement to him. He said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then uh, they bring out the two-buck chucks, the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best until now. You know, have you ever had someone give you credit where you didn't really deserve credit? Uh, this had to be the way the bridegroom was feeling at this point, uh, that uh, he's getting commended for his strategic approach to this wedding reception that, uh, you know, instead of uh, 
letting all the good stuff go first and then putting the cheap stuff in front of the guests. He flipped the tables and uh, saved the best until last. And uh, well, uh, then we're told, as John interprets this miracle, uh, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. You know, I, I mentioned that the miracles of Christ were more than magic tricks. They were signs. They were, they were meant to, to give us uh, an un, unfathomable glimpse into the eternal heart of God. And you have to believe this very first miracle that Christ did it was strategic. It was intentional. And uh, here's something that, that is depicted as Jesus takes these uh, ceremonial jars that were meant for washing, maple, making people acceptable to God, and he turns this common water into the best wine. And it uh, really speaks this message to us that God wants to do something remarkable in our lives, something that far exceeds anything we could produce on our own effort. In fact, people who live in the scriptures, who spend their lives understanding the flow of the text, the original languages, the intent, will say this, that what Christ was demonstrating is that God's not into putting, putting Band-Aids over our brokenness. God is wanting to incite and stir up and awaken an entirely new creation. God wants to take people who are distant from God. And by the way, that's kind of one of the prerequisites of understanding Christmas is that people had drifted far from God. People had drifted from the light of God's presence and were doing life on their own. And into that, God sends his light into the darkness to reach for us. And the message that comes out of this first miracle is that God is not into maintenancing or managing uh, our brokenness and our distant state. He wants to do something entirely new and creative in us. In fact, John will write uh, to ev everyone who believed in him, he gave the right to become children, uh, born not of human will, but born of God. It's this new creation uh, that our attention is drawn to through this first signpost of Jesus. Well, uh, as, you, as you move on and you begin to see the following teachings and events, unpacking this miracle of turning water into wine. Uh, one of the first uh, incidents that comes up right on the heels of the miracle at Cana is what my Bible says, uh, Jesus clears the temple in Jerusalem. And so it's an interesting uh, follow-up uh, to turning the water into wine, to stirring this new creative work that God wants to do in people. Jesus clears the temple in Jerusalem, we're told that in the temple courts, uh, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. You know, uh, this was uh, at the temple of God where uh, people are supposed to go and find communion with God, an open door into the presence of God. Instead, they come and they find a marketplace. And uh, Jesus had an interesting reaction to what he saw, people doing business, people carrying out their, their agendas in the temple of God. It says he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all of them from the temple courts, uh, both sheep 
and cattle. Can you imagine the scene? Uh, first the people, and then the sheep, then the cattle, and uh, just getting rid of uh, the, those doing commerce it wasn't the end of his actions. He then scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And uh, the disciples are probably slack-jawed as they're watching the Lord of Lords, the Word become flesh, the one who came to reveal the unknown God, apparently incited to madness at what he saw happening in the temple. And uh, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And uh, we're told the disciples uh, had an interesting recollection at that point. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Well, what's the message? How does this unpack the new creation, the turning of water into wine? Well, the message is this, uh, that um, Jesus is not interested in supporting our religious agendas. Uh, God is not interested in uh, fortifying our religious efforts. You know, it's so easy uh, to flip-flop our motives when it comes to our participation uh, in the faith community that Christ came to uh, pull together, uh, people who would respond to God and live for him. It, it's so easy uh, for our, our motives to shift from wanting uh, just to respond to God and obey his promptings uh, to uh, we begin to have our own list of expectations, our, our own list of agendas uh, can, can turn political on us but all of these things uh, can make it difficult for outsiders to become insiders, which really was the heart of the temple, that it would become a place of prayer for all nations, for all the people of the earth. And what Jesus found instead was people uh, turning the worship of God uh, into a place where, where their own agendas could be carried out. And, uh, you know, it's the one thing we see in the Gospels that really moved uh, Jesus to anger. And it's a disclosure into the heart of God is he resists anything that makes it difficult for people to find their way to him. Well, uh, on the heels, Jesus cleansing the temple. We come to John chapter 3, and uh, Jesus has a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. Uh, Jesus teaches a religious expert about how to know God. Uh, Nicodemus comes to him at night. He says, look, uh, I'm seeing the works you're doing. I know there's something uh, unique about you. you. You must be a prophet of some kind. And uh, Jesus has an interesting reaction to this religious expert who comes to him by night. Uh, Jesus uh, really just kind of goes directly to the point. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And uh, Nicodemus is taken off guard. He's wondering, uh, you know, I've got all this lifetime of accumulated religious knowledge. I know the Old Testament laws inside and out. And now this prophet of God is telling me I can't even see God at work unless I am born again. And so he asks these uh, uh, challenging questions. How in the world can a man be born a second time? Can he climb back in to his mother's womb? Uh, to which Jesus re responds, he says, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. In fact, the Spirit of God moving in the earth in a person's life, it's like the wind. It blows where it will. 
You hear the sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What's Jesus saying? That God is up to something in this new creation of relating to people, raising up children of his, that they must be responsive to the movement of his Spirit. It's not something you can engineer manipulate, manage on your own. Uh, Jesus is saying, look, uh, this new thing that God has introduced through Christmas has to do with raising up people who more than anything else respond to that still small voice of his spirit. It's like you set the sails of your life and there's, a, uh, there's an ability uh, to respond and to move uh, where God is leading and then uh, finally, in this sequence of events following the changing of water into wine, the clearing of the temple, uh, the instruction to a religious expert, we come to John chapter 4, where Jesus renews a broken woman. And uh, Jesus encounters this woman of Samaria at the well. If you know the story, uh, she's been through a history of broken relationships. She's been married five times. And as Jesus encounters her, his heart goes out to her. He engages her in a conversation, and uh, as he's talking with her, he, she asks him the question, uh, how in the world do you, a Jew, initiate a conversation with me, a woman of Samaria? Here was his response to this dear woman. Jesus said, look, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Well, he, he creates uh, this interest in her. And uh, in fact, he says, indeed, the water that I give will become in people a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And uh, Jesus captures this woman interest. Uh, he's expressed an obvious concern for her life and her well-being. She's open. She's responsive. She begins to ask him questions. What's the right way to worship God? Where do we need to go? How do we need to do this? You caught my attention. I want this life-giving water that you're offering. And uh, his response, again, takes her directly to the heart of God. He says, woman, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, it's not about where they go and what procedures and practices they carry out. It's about a responsiveness to the heart and the will of God. Uh, for they are the kind of worshipers that God is actually looking for. Uh, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. You know, uh, this is an interesting sequence of events, uh, each of them. Uh, glimpses of truth, kind of like that Polaroid photo, uh, each one of them uh, giving us a glimpse into the heart of what God's really after. What is the essence of Christmas? Uh, why did God empty the vaults of heaven and send his own son uh, to be a sacrifice for all people? Uh, well, the answer to that would be uh, God has uh, invested himself fully in uh, creating something entirely new in people like you and I, awakening us uh, to our creator, uh, restoring to us that connection to him. Uh, you know, uh, the end of this sequence of teaching is actually kind of a surprise add-on, but it really, uh, again, gets at the heart what God is inviting us into. 
the disciples come back uh, from their journey into town. They went to get food for the master. They come back and they see him engaged in this conversation with a woman from Samaria. Uh, the scriptures make it very clear. Uh, none of them uh, even took note of the fact that Jesus was speaking with this woman. They went right to their re religious duties. They said, Master, uh, we did what you needed. We've got food for you to eat. His response was interesting. He says, uh, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is, is right here being lived out in front of you. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And uh, the message that Christ is communicating, if we're going to live in this new creation, uh, it means being full participants, that we are engaged uh, with Christ in the work that God came to do for all people in bringing them to his gracious self, uh, restoring them as his children, uh, filling their lives with evidences of his active work uh, in them. Before I lead us in a prayer, you know, I heard a story this week from a, a teacher that I follow, a mentor, uh, attend uh, leadership uh, training conferences that uh, he initiates. Uh, I heard him tell a story this week that really applies uh, to this uh, idea uh, of God wanting to do something remarkable in people uh, that they can't muster up on their own. We can't engineer. We get to be open and responsive, removing the clutter that would keep us at arm's distance from God, opening up to those wells of living water that he wants to stir within us and release through us. Uh, the story is uh, this gentleman I'm referring to, Craig Groeschel, uh, he had been traveling, speaking at conferences. He was on his way home. Uh, he and his travel companion were in an airport. They had uh, sat through two delayed flights. Uh, as he recounts the story, he said he was physically and emotionally exhausted. And uh, as they sat there in that airport uh, waiting area, uh, a woman approached him, and she said, Oh, my gosh, uh, you're my pastor. He, he stood up and he said he mustered up all the energy and the strength he could to kind of listen to this woman for a bit, uh, heard what she had to say. Uh, he and his companion said a prayer for her. He said he returned to his seat, put his head down, uh, tried to uh, get some uh, sleep in. And uh, as he sat there exhausted, he, he felt God prompt him and say, hey, I'm not done doing what I want to do in that conversation between you and that woman. He said he fought off that, that nudge, that urge, until he couldn't fight it off anymore. He said to his friend, hey, I think we need to speak with this woman some more. They went over, and uh, he said what he heard. I felt like God said we're not done with this conversation. And the woman opened her heart up. She said, uh, I was on a business trip. I went out with associates. I got drunk. I had an affair. Uh, I sinned against my husband. I love my husband so much. She sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and cried and cried. And as Craig recounts the story, he said that they prayed with her. They got a, a woman therapist that uh, he's friends with on the phone. They got her connected with this dear lady. Uh, they spoke. They made an agreement that uh, first thing in the morning when she returned home, uh, she would disclose to her husband what had taken place. And as uh, Craig shares the story, he says, don't ever underestimate the importance of responding to those nudges, the wind of the Spirit that moves 
People who are responsive to God above and beyond anything else, they just want to do the business that God sent Jesus into the world to do. And uh, he said, don't ever underestimate those. Well, the next day, as he returned home, he said he took his daughter to a, a lesson across town. He had about an hour and a half to spare. He didn't really have time to drive home and return. And so he said, God, what should I do? And uh, he heard something he'd never heard before, never done before. What he heard was, go to Walmart. <laughs> and so he did. He, he went to the nearest Walmart, said he was walking down the frozen food aisle, uh, didn't want to buy anything, didn't intend to. And a man came walking toward him, and the first words out of this man's mouth were, oh my gosh, you're my pastor. And as he approached him, he said, uh, my wife was with you in the airport last night, and she told me what had taken place, and uh, I just needed to let you know. Uh, Pastor Craig said he uh, embraced the man, uh, prayed for the man, made the comment, do you realize how much God loves you, that he would arrange things, and, and how much grace he has for your marriage? And uh, again, he asked the question, uh, how differently would that story have turned out had he ignored those nudges, those gentle inclinations of God's Spirit leading his kids to do the work that Christ came into the world to do? You know, uh, as we uh, move through this Christmas season, we can get so distracted by the exterior things and miss the one thing that God really came to do, which is uh, to come near to us, uh, the word, the eternal God became flesh and lived among us so that we could uh, come into that relationship that he has with the Father. You know, John would also write this in his opening prologue. Uh, really, Christmas comes down to this. This is the verdict, John writes. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness. They loved doing their own thing. They love pursuing their own agendas. They love filling the temple of God with their clutter instead of light because their deeds uh, were evil. They were bent. They were twisted. But Jesus said, whoever lives by the truth uh, comes into the light, opens up to the light, and allows the light to fill and infiltrate their own lives. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you so much for the way that you love us. Uh, thank you that uh, your word tells us very clearly uh, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I thank you for this remarkable, the works of Jesus that he did that, that give us glimpses into who you are, what you're about. Lord, we would just thank you for this uh, miraculous uh, turning of the water into wine. Uh, that you would, uh, in such a dramatic fashion, show us that uh, you're not looking for our religious efforts. You're not looking for our uh, ability to make ourselves presentable to you. Uh, thank you, Jesus. Uh, that zeal for your Father's house has consumed you. You poured it all out, Lord, so that we wouldn't have to go through hoops, wouldn't have to go through uh, an endless array of steps in order to get in touch with God, but we could come because you laid down your life, you opened the way for us, and Lord, thank you for the witness of your interaction with this woman 
who'd been to hell and back. Her life was broken and messed up, but you were there for her, offering her this life-giving water and inviting your followers to join you in this work. Lord, wherever people are at as they hear these words, I pray that this week would be an intentional week of stepping in to that new creation, uh, presenting themselves in a fresh way. In fact, I would ask you, uh, what will you do this week uh, to make yourselves available uh, to God, turning your water into wine? Uh, what will you do this week uh, to share uh, that intentionality of Jesus, to remove the clutter and to open the way for uh, sincere communion with God, to worship God in spirit and in truth, and to join him in his work in the world. Lord, thank you that you lead us, you guide us one step at a time. We don't know how to control the wind, but we can sure be receptive to it, to go where it's taking us. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.